0: I'm Liz Gold, and you're listening to Conversations. Stories about strength, courage, and making it through. I'm glad you're here. to conversations. I'm your host Liz Gold. Thanks for being here. My guest today is Sam Fader and before I bring Sam on, Let me give you some background. Cited by IndieWire as one of the exciting trans filmmakers shaking up Hollywood. Sam's films explore legacy, conflict, and futures within the queer and trans communities while setting new standards for the ethics and documentary filmmaking. Sam has created several award-winning documentaries that center the intersections of race, class, sexuality, and conflict within the queer and trans community. Sam seeks to connect transgender struggles and liberation to the context of the present- and legacy of the past by showing that our communal history makes our present lives possible. Sam's second feature, Kate Bornstein is a Queer and Pleasant Danger, was named one of the best LGBT documentaries of 2014 by The Advocate and cited by IndieWire as one of the must-see films of the same year. Most recently, Sam is the director and co-producer of Disclosure, Trans Lives on Screen, a documentary that follows an in-depth look at Hollywood's depiction of transgender people and the impact of their stories on transgender lives and American culture. It was an official selection for Sundance and Tribeca Film Festival written about in The Hollywood Reporter, LA Times and Democracy Now!, among others, and was on IndieWire's list of early Oscar predictions for Best Documentary. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Liz. It's so nice to talk with you. Yay. Um, So... Wow. Well, first of all, big congratulations to you and Amy Shoulder and Liveran Cox and every single person who worked on this film. It's incredibly moving and powerful piece of work. And you just released Disclosure onto Netflix last month. And ever since, so many people I've talked to are talking about it, like watching it, talking about it. And now you're getting an Oscar prediction. I mean, how has it been for you to get it out? there in the world? It wasn't easy.
1: I got to say it has not been easy. We're still hustling really hard every day. You know, it's definitely been a a little engine that could kind of situation for five years. You know, when we were first raising money, we were literally laughed out of, you know, boardrooms because our budget exceeded what they expected a, a documentary budget to be. And that was largely because we paid everyone their day rates, you know, and that's part of sort of the standards that I'm fighting for in the documentary world is that, you know, we are not volunteers. We're people actually who have, you know, are trying to make a career out of this and we need to pay everyone their day rates and we need to train people, you know, especially marginalized people, trans people, queer people, people of color. We need more people who have the skills to be in the field. And I mean, I was largely self-taught because I was never comfortable really being on sets working with other filmmakers. So our budget included paying fellows when we couldn't hire a trans person for a key role. So from the beginning, it's been hard. You know, we got into Sundance. That was thrilling. That was amazing. And then, but then even selling the film, we literally (laughs) were told things like, oh, you know, from certain television station, they would say things like, oh, we already have a trans film, right? We don't want to oversaturate our market because we bought a trans film four years ago. And then even some distributors had the audacity to say, we already have something like this. (laughs) I was like, you know, I wish you had something like this so it could have helped me make this, but nothing like this exists. Like this has never been done before. So it was bananas. So it was really hard. And then of course, after Sundance, we were thrilled and excited to travel around the world and go to all these film festivals and then you know film festivals I had dreamed of for the past 20 years of being able to go to including Tribeca my hometown film festival and then of course that all got cancelled so that you know all the personal anxiety and grief and fear around COVID and then there was the career and film anxiety and career, uh, fear and loss and grief around COVID. So it's been bananas. And we really didn't make, you know, Netflix offered us a very mediocre uh, sale early on, but it wouldn't have done justice to the film. Um, So it, it didn't feel good. And then it was a licensing sale. And then I think it was around early May where they said they wanted to program it sooner rather than later and what would that take and so then we negotiated an originals which meant they would give us a lot more support around uh, the launch and you know for full transparency the money they paid us half of what it cost us to make the film so even at the end you know we're still struggling financially the Netflix platform is incredible you know for better or for worse, like there's nothing like it right now. But we didn't get paid what we should have. Like I said, we got half of what it costs to make it. So it's been a struggle, and it continues to be a struggle. That being said, the response has far exceeded anything I could have hoped for or possibly dreamed. It's so meaningful and makes everything worth it, you know, ten times over. Uh, to hear how people are responding and to see the reach that the film is getting, and to see that it's already having a positive influence
0: on people's lives. Yeah. First of all, I have so many questions for you because I mean, just in that opening, you know, and I'm not surprised to hear it was a struggle. I mean, I'm sad to hear that it was a struggle and (laughs) get the money that you, you know, make back the money that you put into it, especially since you're trying to support, you are supporting, you know, queer and trans filmmakers and writers and producers. And I believe like most, if not all of your crew is trans and queer, Right? Or is that wrong? No, that's correct. I never want to assume
1: anyone's sexuality. But I think when I said at some point to all my crew, is it true if I say everyone's queer? And everyone was like, yep. So I'm going to say yes. Crew was a hundred percent queer. We prioritized hiring trans people, and when we couldn't hire a trans person, the non-trans person we hired mentored a trans fellow, and that was part of hiring that non-trans person was to see how they felt about that. And I only wanted to hire people that would be like thrilled and be excited and see it as as an honor, right, to be able to be in that position to pay it forward. Uh, And so everyone that had a fellow was just incredible, incredibly generous and kind, and also. They learned so much by being on this project, you know, by being able to see firsthand the experiences of trans people and and how we approach filmmaking. And, you know, one of our fellows was this woman named Desi and she was a gaffer, a very experienced gaffer. And she came on this project because she was really excited about the topic and she had never worked with trans people before. And she was so moved by her experience with her mentee, with her fellow, that she went back to her union, which is called IATSE, which is the largest tech union in the world. And she instituted the first trans sensitivity training. So mm-hmm. from the beginning, we started to see the domino effect of this production model. And, you know, now we've trained all these, we've trained, not only trained trans people, but now non-trans people have had this experience and exposure to the trans community, you know, and allyship is all in action, right? So we're already seeing the action of allies come to fruition. And, you know, it's, as hard as it was, we did this, a small indie project did it. And so, you know, projects with studio backing really have no excuse when it comes to crewing and, you know, creating opportunities for trans people to be in the industry.
0: Mm -hmm. So how did the idea for this film come about? You know, it's
1: a film I've been thinking about for you know, decade. Certainly as long as I've been making films and maybe before. You know, early in my career, there were two films I saw that really changed my relationship to the media. There's a a 1987 film called Ethnic Notions that's made by Marlon Riggs. And it's about the representation of Black people in film, particularly Hollywood film. And the other was called Cellular Closet and that came out uh, seven years later in 1995. And that's about the gay and lesbian, about gay and lesbian representation in film in Hollywood. And, you know. Ethnic notions in particular is an example of how when you just slightly shift your lens, you're seeing American history in a whole different way, right? So it's really, while it's a film about the history of representation, it really shows you a history of America that you just don't see when it's, you know, cis, white, straight men telling that history. And so I was just really moved by the power of how representation creates these mythologies and legacies and a historical documentations. And I wanted to see what that representation would look like for trans people. So that's something I'd always thought about. The timing would have been right at any point, but it didn't seem like something that I would be doing. You know, I'm not a historian. I got my start in archival film and doing research for archival film, but I didn't think of myself as an archivist. So it just didn't seem like a project I would do. But then you know 2014 ish you know uh I had been making films for about 10 years at that point and trans visibility was increasing you know more than we had ever seen before and mainstream society was talking about us more than ever and i there were two things that were really disconcerting to me about that moment in time and that was one how the media was insinuating that visibility itself was the goal for the trans movement mm. you know that because we were now you know, a topic of mainstream conversation, we had achieved success. And certainly, you know, those of us living it and looking at the lives around us knew that that wasn't the case. And then the second was that transness was somehow something new, right? And so I felt really compelled to give trans and non-trans people more context to understand these changes in our culture, to give a sense of the history and how we got to this point of conversation and public discourse all while foregrounding the fact that visibility in and of itself is not the goal, right? It's a means to an end. So there was more to the story than what the public was seeing and talking about, and I wanted to tell that story. So I started in 2015, in the summer of 2015.
0: Wow. I mean, and I I think I saw a photo of you somewhere, maybe it was on your Instagram, but of you sitting at a desk, piles of like old VHSs and maybe like (laughs) DVDs and whatever. I don't even recognize the media at this point, but... You know, and I'm just curious. Like, how do you dive into a project like this? Because I mean, and go through all of the footage and sort of what is the actual process of going through that and deciding what to use, and also how do you manage your feelings around all of that?
1: Mm, Those are all really good questions. You know, and that photo was taken from exactly where I'm sitting right now. (laughs) So as much as things change, they stay the same. And yeah, I had I had gone to my friend. You know, I I gathered all this material you know and some of it was already digitized but a lot of it wasn't and it took me a while to find a vcr that worked you know (laughs) our our assistant editor got us a vcr at some point and after i think the first tape i put it in i put in the vcr it got stuck and so i was like oh my god and then i was looking online and i was really like trying i was trying to buy one and then do you remember dasha dasha snyder from new york She was a filmmaker. She made the D word, you know, the dyke word after the L word came out. I don't know if you remember that years ago, like so long ago. So I posted something maybe on Facebook like, does anybody have a VCR I could borrow? And Dasha was so sweet. I think she was home at the time, like wherever she grew up, childhood home. And she shipped me like VCR that she had and it saved my life. So I, you know, I was able to digitize all those tapes all those VHS tapes. But anyway, back to your question. The films I'd mentioned that really influenced this project, Ethnic Notions and Celluloid Closet, they were both based on books. So there, I assumed there'd be a book, but there was not. There was one tiny, tiny book called like, Transgender on Screen, I think it was called. And at best, it was mildly offensive. So that was not a good resource. And, and so I very quickly realized that I would be having to create the primary document uh, to base the film on. And documenting history is really ethically precarious. And so I did not want to do this in a vacuum. I wanted to bring in as many voices and memories and perspectives as possible. So the first thing I did was interview. I did research interviews with about 80 people, trans people who had all worked on one side of the camera or the other. And those interviews were very similar to what you see in the final product, but it was with a lot more people. And the point of that was really about collecting the data, like figuring out what do people remember? And at that point, I didn't think the film was going to be only about Hollywood. I thought it was going to be a much larger look at all trans representation. But as I was doing those interviews over those, I think it was like eight months, everyone kept referencing Hollywood. Mm. And so very quickly clear that that was where the memory was. That's where the collective memory was. And that would be the most influential place to look at the history. So after those interviews, I started creating a database of clips from television shows and titles of movies. And, you know, we centered on Hollywood and that stories that, you know, had characters and storylines that transgress gender expectations, right? That was sort of the wide the definition that we were looking at because, you know, you know that Language and definitions change all the time, and understanding of transness would change all the time. And while I, you know, we know trans people have been part of the fabric of every society, the, the fabric of every culture for all time, the way people understood transness, the way people understand it now, you know, it's constantly changing. So I couldn't take the way we understand transness and put it, you know, to the beginning of you know hundred years ago and look for those images. So we had to. So the definition I had was, you know. Images that transgress gender expectations. So we're going back to like 1898 and we see how transgressing gender expectations have always been a site of fasc- fascination, you know, from early, early celluloid. And as Susan Stryker says in the film, transness and cinema really grew up together, right? You really see how from the beginning of cinema, trans stories were baked in it. And so that's, you know, how I really started to collect the data uh, and then, you know, there are articles here and there and just, you know, one reference takes you to another. And I think by the end I had about 600 television titles and about 400 film titles. So there's a lot that didn't make it a disclosure that I hope to put to use at some point.
0: Yeah, I remember watching it, the pr- I watched it twice. I watched it oh. when it first came out and I remember watching it and being like, I really could have watched like two more hours of that. You know, hearing everybody speak and really, doing such an amazing and critical analysis of like what all of this uh, representation means and the impact that it had on so many trans people's lives, you know, I mean, there were certain moments that just like struck me as, you know, I I laughed, I cried, like I cried, it was emotional. I was like horrified. I mean, there's so many emotions just watching that film, as I'm sure many other people have experienced. And so, I mean, who was your team early on? And then how did you end up, you know, um, hooking up with Laver and Cox? Mm. So early,
1: early, 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 early on, I was working with two friends in New York, Alex Berg and Alexi Wagner. First, Alex Berg, she's a, a journalist, producer, filmmaker in New York. And we were honestly, I need to think about how we actually first started talking, but we started talking about doing some work together. And I, you know, we were, I kind of told her about this idea and we early on applied for some kind of funding and that really helped us crystallize our our language around it. And then shortly after, I think Alexi reached out and was like, you know, are you working on anything now? I'd love to help you. And so the three of us really were the start of doing these research interviews. And then about guess, six or eight months in, six months in, I suppose, Amy Shoulder joined joined us. Um, And Amy, I had known because of my last film, Kate is A Queer Pleasant Danger, and she programmed it at the hammer. And so we had sort of had this work relationship for a while and we reconnected over Disclosure and she was really interested in, in helping. So Amy joined in early 2016 and about a year and a half in the summer of 2017, I was invited to Outfest to present some of my research. Outfest has a day-long trans summit where they highlight the work of trans filmmakers and trans films. And they asked me to present my research on disclosure, so I did. And while I'm on stage showing some clips and giving some background, I look up in the audience and I see this beautiful blonde with huge sunglasses on, reflective sunglasses, sitting in the audience. And I immediately knew it was Laverne. And it took all of my composure to not freak out at that moment on stage because I probably just mentioned her two seconds before. And I see her in the audience and she's nodding along and she's really engaged And when I was done, I was just, you know, when we got off stage, I was just thinking about how, you know, Laverne, I'd always thought about how it'd be great to work with her. She was a perfect match for this project. You know, I knew about her activism as everybody does. And also, you know, obviously she's a historian in her own right, and she's an incredibly brilliant thinker. But I just wasn't sure in what capacity, you know, she would be available or interested. But After the presentation, she came over to me and my producer and just was like, I have always wanted to make a film like this. And how can I help you? And I would love to be involved. So I was, you know, thrilled, tried to play it cool. And, (laughs) you know, um, a week later, we had lunch and and we had a four hour lunch meeting. And from there, you know, it it all went from there. And she came on as our executive producer. And it was not in name only. Um, I think as you can You know, if you can see now, she's hustling, you know, doing all the media for us. But from the beginning, she was deeply collaborative, you know, involved in the research, involved in production, involved in editing. She was involved every step of the way. She's incredibly passionate about this film. And she has just been an ideal executive producer to work with.
0: Wow. What a story. That's amazing. And I mean, so you mentioned that you had all of this, these interviews and material. How did you end up like narrowing it down and deciding, you know, who would be appearing in the film and what clips you would use?
1: Well, in terms of who appears in the film, you know, we ended up with about 30 people in the film. There could be hundreds of people. There's so many people not in the film. You know, you can't Really, make a cohesive documentary with too many people, you know. So we did the best we could with as many as we have. I was definitely committed with having a lot of people. This is a community story; it's a history, and it can't, you know. So many trans stories are about a singular individual experience, and I think that that really does a disservice to the trans community. Anyway, that's a whole other topic. So. While we included a lot of people, it's never going to be enough. Like there's so many people whose voices are not in here and that need to be. And so we really need to see more and more histories. I mean, we really need to see more documentation of our histories, whether it's scripted or non-scripted. But everyone we included is trans and has worked on one side of the camera or the other. And a lot of the conversations you see are conversations I've been having with a lot of these people for many years, you know. I've been making films for 17 years. I've always made films about trans issues. So, you know, overlapped and crossed paths with so many other so many other trans filmmakers and people working in film, trans people working in film. And same for Laverne, right? So, a lot of these most of the people you see on screen are folks that we've had, you know, many many years of relationships with and people that we didn't, you know, we found ways of being connected to them. And then in terms of how we told the story, you know, so much of it was based on those research interviews and what came up in the research interviews. And then, you know, in the research that Laverne and I were doing, you know, there were certain touchstones that we felt were really important. So it was a sort of dance between what organically came up um, in the interviews, what organically came up in the research that we did, and how to make that all work together. And then if there were certain things that people didn't bring up on their own, maybe we would show them clips and say, do you have a response to these clips that we think are important? But if they didn't, it didn't make it into the film, right? We weren't going to force anything. You know, Teague Milan was just talking about that on an interview he did yesterday, where he mentioned that I had shared clips with him that I, you know, was hoping maybe he'd comment on. And he didn't want to speak on anything that he hadn't seen before, right? He didn't want to just react to something new. So, you know, everyone approached it in their own way. And I think that's part of what makes the film So powerful because you can feel how everyone is walking in with a lifetime of experience and reflecting on their life experience. Trans people are the experts of their own history. No one can or should talk about or for us. And I think that really comes through in the interviews because people are genuinely speaking from topics and issues that they have been struggling with and dealing with and thinking about for so long. Mm-hmm. So it was really this dance between what came up organically, the issues that we wanted to bring in and whether or not that that felt, you know, honest to, to people's experience. And then in, in editing, we relied on the personal anecdotes, right? The personal anecdotes that would come up and then we would use clips to support that and further those conversations.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what were some of the themes that came up organically when you were interviewing people? And also, I guess as a second side of this question, what were some big sort of discoveries for you as you were putting this together?
1: An early discovery for me that seems sort of obvious now, but at the time, it was like, wow, I just can't, I couldn't... At the time... It, it gave me pause, but seeing how, you know, transness has always been a site of fascination, transgressing gender expectations, you know, that early, early films had trans bodies in them as, as the, you know, the butt of a joke, as you see in Judith Bethulia. But, you know, these early, early characters were really a stand in often for misogyny, right? So when you see pre-Judith Bethulia, when you see like, in the sorry, I was going to say the early 1890s, which is a strange way of putting that. So in the, in the 1890s, you see these screen tests, when people were first testing out celluloid, and you see, like, you know, uh, there was a male comedian at the time called Gilbert Saroni, or S- Saroni. And, you know, he often was in drag, right? So you put on a wig, maybe put on a dress and just sort of swish around and act like a, you know, quote, unquote, silly woman, right? And that was. When you would transgress gender on screen, when a man would transgress these gender expectations, he was making fun of women, right? So it was a stand-in for misogyny and making fun of women. And then you fast forward, and then a, the same image becomes a stand-in for gay men. And then you fast forward again through decades, and that same exact image is a stand-in for trans women. And so that was just mind-blowing to me, how like these, the semiotics of it, right? The symbolism of the same image change, changing over time and then the other thing that was so interesting to me is that as painful as a lot of this was or humiliating or exhausting or frustrating it was simultaneously really validating because so often marginalized communities are told they're being too sensitive uh, that their feelings aren't real that what they're experiencing is is not true and here we and I get it just kept collecting these images that reinforced so much of the shame and the pain and the violence that I had internalized, you know, through our culture. And this was one place that is it was being fed in our culture. And I was able to finally point to something, you know, and say, here, here's the proof. And it, it's really horrible that people need proof to their feelings so often, but here was somewhere I could point to that proof. So there was a lot of validation in collecting the material.
0: Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, I think that put some people on... In the film, are talking about too. I mean, it's you know, yeah. Just want to take a minute and just like absorb like everything that you're saying because it's just such a powerful film. And I want to be like Sam, but I love this part. I this part, and I was so apol like the Ace Ventura thing. I was like, I don't Mm. think I can watch another Jim Carrey movie, even though I I hear that he came out and you know apologized about
1: it or whatever. Can I tell you what his apology was? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it was so. It was so interesting cuz yes i heard he apologize and i was like oh maybe we should you know interview him for in press and like that would be great like let him talk about his apology and and so i found some august 2019 right not even a year ago mm-hmm. where he talked about you know this, this apology and he said yeah i mean Sure, I would probably do this film differently now, but I think it was really misunderstood at the time. It was really about the ridiculousness of homophobia, and I was just being over the top about homophobia. And then he said, "I mean, I vomited because I kissed a man."
0: Oh my God. <laughs> so it was like
1: in 2019, he didn't even understand that that character was portrayed as a trans woman, yeah. right?
0: Yeah,
1: it's so it, that just spoke volumes to me, right? So. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. And Just I, statement. I probably won't be watching Jim.
1: <laughs> Poor guy. He doesn't know what he doesn't know, right? I know,
0: but you know, I get that, and you know, I'm not. I won't give it away, but I, you know, if you haven't seen the film, I really highly recommend going to Netflix and watching the film. I mean, it's incredibly impactful and so important. I mean, for everybody to watch to really understand, like how trans people have been depicted in Hollywood. And it's just like, I love Dirty Sexy Money when that show Mm -hmm. came out. I love Mm -hmm. that show. And, you know, so it was really cool. Yeah. I mean, just to hear sort of the backstory on that. And so I know, I, I feel like I have so many other, so many questions for you, Sam. I mean, it's just like you created such an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. And now it's, you're being talked about for uh, for an Oscar. I mean, so like when you heard that, like, what was your response?
1: Well, the Oscar, it's it's a prediction, right? It's a yeah. prediction on possible front runners, which is a huge, huge, huge honor. And I'm excited and I'm thrilled, but it, you know, it really, the, the Oscars have been delayed till April. So much can happen between now and then, right? So many more films are going to come out, you know? It, so it's like you have a campaign to get on a short list, and then from the shortlist, you then get nominated. So I'm realistic about what that press around that means. But it being mentioned in the same sentence as an Oscar is, I don't even have the words for it. I mean, that's unbelievable. It's And it's a testament to, I think where we're at in the cultural conversation now, and, you know, you never know the timing of the release of your film, but it's been such a privilege. It's been such an honor. It's been so meaningful to be able to contribute to the cultural conversations that that are happening right now, you know, particularly around Black trans lives. And so to be able to be part of that is such a gift. You know, I feel like our culture is more is, is hungry right now. Society, people want to know what they need to learn. They want to know what they need to unlearn. And it's great to have this, you know, two-hour document, like, <laughs> give it to you and tell you one place, one area that you need to learn and unlearn. And so people are really receptive to the film, I think, so particularly because of where we are in our cultural conversations at the moment. And I think being part of this list, you know, is, you know, just highlighting that. I don't really know how it's, you know, When I got the phone call that we got into Sundance, that, you know, was certainly a highlight Mm -hmm. of my life. You know, I've dedicated my life, my adult life to making work, you know, at the sacrifice of so much else. So that validation and that excitement and to know I would have that platform, you know, at the premiere was so thrilling, you know and validating and felt really good. And so being on that list is similarly like, wow, to be a contender, you know, to be a contender and making a difference in the world, to be a contender among other films and filmmakers that I admire so much. It feels so good because making a film is so hard. Anyone who finishes a film should get a huge prize. <laughs> you know, making a film is so, so hard. So to know that It's being held in that capacity, you know, kind of just gives us the boost that we need right now. And it's just, I don't really have the words to explain. Like just, you know, it's really, feels really good.
0: Yeah. And the reception of the film, obviously in the trans and queer community, it's been really just, everybody seems very psyched about it. I mean, I don't want to say everybody, but you know, I would assume that people are very psyched about it. And I mean, what has been the impact? Like what kind of response have you... Gotten. I mean, anybody going to your Facebook page or the disclosure Facebook page or on Instagram can see some of the comments and response, but what have you received personally from people in the community? You
1: know, of course, most sensitive to what, you know, trans, how trans people experience the film. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's a lot of critique around it. I mean, like I said, not you know, there's so many voices that aren't included. There's so many clips that aren't included. That being said, it has been an overwhelmingly positive and excited response. You know, what, something people ask me a lot is like, was it painful to go through all this material? And I talked about that a little bit with you a few minutes ago. But something that I struggled with a lot was, what does it mean to be presenting this material to trans people, right? What does it mean? Like, is it going to do more harm? And, you know, I sat with that a lot. And I came to the conclusion that most of us have seen all this already, (laughs) but I think seeing it in this context, you know, held and guided by other trans people, you know, seeing it outside of yourself in this one place, I think can really allow you to move past a lot of what you've internalized to, to, you know, we've internalized all this hate and shame and violence for so long. So seeing it outside of you, I think it allow you to move past it in a different way. And I've been hearing that. I've been hearing people say that, It has allowed them to have a perspective that they've never felt before. And I've seen just that that people f- feel empowered, you know, by seeing other trans people tell this story. They feel empowered by having this history now and having a tool to use to explain certain feelings and experiences to non-trans people, to their family, to people in their workplace. So that is the most meaningful impact I can imagine is for other trans people to feel empowered by this. You know, we do have a really huge impact campaign where we want this film to be used from everywhere from obviously the industry for Hollywood to know to do better. And I think we've seen some evidence of that when last week Halle Berry Berry stepped away from playing a trans man after she announced that she would. And, you know, people just said, you know, watch Disclosure and then rethink that. And so she stepped away. So that was great industry impact. But I also want to see it like one of my dreams was, you know, how could lawyers, you know, how could lawyers who are representing trans people, how could they use this film to their benefit? You know, and I imagined my hope was that they would see this film and then have these shortcuts, these like these cultural shortcuts to talk to their jury. Right, and be like, you might have these stereotypes about my client because of X, Y, and Z that you saw in this movie. right? And this is why it's not true. right? And this is a real person here that we're talking about and real experiences. right? That was a dream of mine. Mm-hmm. And I did get an email from my friend, Chase Strangio, who appears briefly at the end of the film, and he works at the ACLU. And he told me that one of his colleagues, who is a, a non-trans lawyer, watched Disclosure in order to help her create her argument in Defending a trans client. So, you know, that kind of feedback is really, you know, really I take home that makes it all worth it to me
0: Yeah, I mean it's impacting people in so many ways. I mean, you know, and then you have that statistic in the film where it's, you know, 80% of Americans say they don't think they've ever met a trans person. And so everything that they know about trans people comes from film and TV, you know, so that is why it's so important that you make a film like this to tell the story of trans people from their own mouths, you know, from their own hearts uh, to sort of dispel all of that. Wow, Sam. So like, what are your days like now? (laughs) Sitting in the same place
1: that I was digitizing tapes (laughs) years ago. You know, we're still doing a lot of conversations like this and still talking to a lot of people, which I love to do. So we're doing a lot of press, we're, we're, we're on a lot of panels, you know, we're developing our impact campaign. And part of that is working with partners, right? Working with partner organizations to develop resources and to figure out how Disclosure can be a tool for the work they're doing and how they can help us spread the word around Disclosure. And right now we have about 50 partners on board and they're all on our website and we're constantly looking for more partner organizations and individuals who want to bring this film to their communities and have conversations around it. And we we help to produce those events. So that's ongoing and will be ongoing for a really long time. You know, also, we're going to, you know, start to ramp up a a campaign for awards. You know, we really would love to continue the visibility and for better or for worse, having awards helps to amplify your platform. We want to continue to use our platform to elevate trans voices, but Black trans voices in particular. You know, uh, we know we're living in an epidemic of violence and murder on the bodies of Black trans women. And so in particular, elevating those conversations so that it is part of the everyday discourse that we are all living in and experiencing and should be forever, you know, talking about Black lives, Black trans lives. You know, there's so much that we're still doing. That's Those are a few of
0: the things. Yeah, no, I would imagine that you're very, very busy. And I I also want to just follow up one thing about the lawyers. My brother does mm. lawyer stories on Instagram, which is like a 30,000 member community of lawyers all across the world. Mm. And so, I just want to flag this. So, he tags it in his stories. So, lawyers.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> you see, to watch Disclosure and learn and use it in their cases. So just flagging that here. Yeah, well, I mean, Sam, my I guess my last question is, because I know we have to wrap up, but since you released this in the pandemic, it sounds like you were able to release it at Sundance. So you did get to experience the film in front of a live audience. Was that the only time?
1: Yeah, that is so sad. <laughs> oh you God. know, this is such a community film. And part of my understanding of how people would take in, you know, this imagery was to be in community, right, to laugh together to feel the emotion together to hear like people sigh at the same time you know and then have the conversations afterwards like that's so meaningful to hear people talk about it and then go out for dinner and talk about it some more and make connections so yeah it's been tricky Mm. to readjust to how to to experience the viewer experience virtually and so yeah that was our only live in-person screening and it's, it's all been virtual since
0: Wow. Well, I hope you have some more live in person.
1: I hope so, too. I want to reach out to, especially the queer festivals, once festivals are back going, and just say, you know, do you want to just do like a one-off screening of Disclosure? It doesn't have to be part of any official festival lineup, but just so we can have it in community so people can can watch it together and talk about it. That's, I'm scheming that one. But, (laughs) and I hope to see you in person one day soon.
0: I know, that would be amazing. I mean, we are still on the same coast now. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So how can people follow along? I'm going to put everything in the show notes, but if you, how can people follow along with Disclosure and what's the website and all of that, Jeff?
1: Yeah, well, we're streaming on Netflix, obviously. Disclosure will be on Netflix for a long time. Our website is, I think, DisclosureTheMovie.com. DisclosureTheMovie.com. Our Instagram is DisclosureDoc.com. I know all of our socials are like our disclosure doc, but let me just double check if it has an underscore.
0: (laughs) I think think it's... Is
1: it Disclosure Underscore Doc on Instagram? Is that right?
0: I think it's Uh, Disclosure Underscore Doc on Twitter, it looks like.
1: You're right. You're right. Twitter is Disclosure Underscore Doc. Instagram is one word, Disclosure Doc. And I think Facebook is Disclosure Doc as well. So Disclosure Doc, you can find us. (laughs) Yeah. Our Instagram is my favorite. It's really fun. Alex Schmitter, it really has spearheaded our social media. and, And so has Bryce from... 113 one, collective. I hope I said that right, Bryce. And, but Alex Schmitter is just an, an incredible do- job on our Instagram. And it's just so cute. You know, if you, if you go back a couple months, you can see our crew, you can see a lot of our cast on sets and behind the scenes, you know, and then recently this past, you know, month or two just been really great posts about the film yeah. that Alex, Alex has done. And I love our Instagram. I'm, you know, I'm more of a visual person. So Instagram's more of my place than, than Twitter.
0: Yeah. And Facebook, which is a nightmare, but anyway, yeah,
1: I'm di- I'm getting divorced with Facebook, and I are splitting up <laughs> very soon. I wanted to leave Facebook months ago, but my team was like, "Got to stick it out for the film." So you know, it's still really helpful for work.
0: Yeah. No, getting I, off. I, I you. I, I've been like, I don't social. I'm so.
1: I don't socialize on Facebook at all. Yeah.
0: Woo. So, well, Sam, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk. <laughs> <laughs> My,
1: My pleasure. pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to speak with you and your listeners.
0: Yes, and um, everybody, please go check out Disclosure on Netflix. It's really, really amazing film. So, Sam, thank you so much. Thanks, Liz. Conversations is produced by Rhino Girl Media, a communications consulting company. To advance or evolve your next communications project, check out my website, rhinogirlmedia.com, or contact me at liz at rhinogirlmedia.com. You can always follow me on Instagram at lizstacygold. And if you like this podcast, please leave a review, share it, or send me some love. Thanks for listening. Until next time.